iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Apple Store Soho tonight. Good to see you. All right. You look great. Thank you so much for coming to the event. Uh, before we start our special event tonight, we are going to teach you a little bit about filmmaking. We have a three-hour intensive in Final Cut Pro. Or maybe we should skip that and get right to our guest, right? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage a man who hails from Detroit, Michigan, known sometimes to his close friends as the Panther in white shoes, Elvis Mitchell! Yes, there is. Please welcome Elvis Mitchell, our moderator for tonight. And now welcome to the stage, Edgar Wright, Michael Sarah, Anna Kendrick, and Jason Schwartzman. Hi, everybody. Um, Edgar, I've got to ask you, because one of the things I've mentioned to you before is that Scott Pilgrim fits into your world, that kind of combination of the fantastic and the everyday together. Yeah, uh, when I read the first book back in um, 2004, when it was first published, uh, it reminded me a little bit of uh, the TV show Space that I'd done with Simon Pegg and Jessica Stevenson. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it reminded me a bit of Space, and, uh, and it was something that... And, and Brian Lee O'Malley had never seen Space until I first talked to him, and I sent him the DVD. But uh, what I really liked and wanted to return to after Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz was the idea of, you know, everyday characters and everyday situations and the sort of mundane becoming the insane. And, you know, Space was a show where there were lots of dream sequences and flashbacks, um, but this film felt like, and the books felt like the dream sequence that never ends. So I was really attracted to that, of, like, a chance to do something... Because um, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, as crazy as they are, take place in the real world. And this is kind of more of a daydream. And Michael, did you know the comics before they came to you? Or had... Yeah, I, uh, I had read the first two. That, those were, I think, the only ones that were released and when, I, when I met it. They're very, very Canadian. They're very Canadian and, and very funny. Anyone here who hasn't read them should really go buy them and read them. They're great. But in terms of doing it, though, did you see that you could play Scott Pilgrim? Because physically, you I, could be that guy in a lot of ways. Physically, yeah. Physically, I thought, oh, that's like me. <laughs> kind of a fit guy. A young, fit guy. That's how I think of myself. So what was your workout regimen, speaking of fit? What did you do to get in shape for the movie? We all ran every morning and threw medicine balls to each other and did push-ups and general conditioning, just so that we wouldn't pass out during these fight sequences, you know, and run out of breath, like, after the first take. And uh, can we get quiet on the floor? <laughs> quiet on the floor, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> what was your first meeting like when you guys first spoke about this? We met uh, in Toronto when I was promoting Hot Fuzz and I met Michael and uh, we talked about it and um, yeah, so this was like three years ago. So it's been, you know, kind of, um, you know, been worked on for a long time and uh, yeah, like he said at the time, only two of the books have been published and the third one had been written. And so, you know, the, the, it's, it's been good in a way that there's been sort of a, um, 
been able to work on it quite organically with Brian Lee O'Malley, the author, over the last like five years. That the kind of the the film and the books have kind of been developed in tandem with each other. Um, so that's been great. I mean, it, 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 you know, and we had access to Brian all the way through, and you know, he contributed to it. I didn't answer your question at all. I'm sorry, I went off on like. I'm used to that. That's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think so. We we uh, we went out on a date in Toronto. We went to see the movie Live Free or Die Hard. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> we saw it at the Scotiabank in Toronto, and then you know we our elbows touched on the seat on the armrest yeah. at one point. We both went to get some junior mints at the same time, and our hands touched, and it was a bit awkward. Uh, I knew then that I would know you for several years. <laughs> this is just so touching here in the Apple Store to hear these kinds of confessions. Anna, when did you come to this whole process? Um, I, the first time I met Edgar actually was the morning. It was like the earliest meeting I'd ever had. It was like in, at like six thirty in the morning because I was getting on a plane to shoot the first Twilight film. Uh, yeah, I, I, like oddly, I feel like I was like one of the first people cast after Michael and Mary. Is that true? Is that actually? Yeah, no, I'd seen Anna in Rocket Science, and we met in two. Yes, uh, yes. And so in two thousand and eight, two thousand and eight. Yeah. And um, Je- and yeah. Yeah, and, and, and like being one of the first people cast, I kept asking Edgar, like, who were the... I was really excited to know who else was going to be in it and who was going to be playing the evil exes. And I remember him telling me that he was thinking about having Chris Evans do it. And, um, and this, like, the look on his face was amazing. Cause, and he was sort of saying, like, just the idea of choosing young Hollywood and having them, like, fight to the death for his amusement was, like... <laughs> I all of a sudden saw him as like the evil puppet master of this whole thing. Speaking of puppets, Jason, when did you come into this whole thing? Uh, uh, well, we'll talk about the. the I'll, I'll answer the question, then maybe later if I'm around outside, I'll be on Spring Street, I'll talk about the puppet thing. Anyone wants to know about it? Um, I, I, uh, I, uh, I became involved in um, 2008. Is it? Eight and um, um, I met Edgar Wright, who was someone that I'd always wanted to work with um, from his um, spaced work and from his movies. And uh, it, you know, it's like a thing where you think, well, uh, he's English, and um, and most of his movies have only English actors and are made over there. Yeah. So I never thought, you know, I would get to work with this guy, you know, who I love and who's such a great filmmaker. Uh, I didn't know, you know, maybe he'll never have an American, you know, be in one of his movies. And um, so when this opportunity came up, it was it was such an uh, it was like an explosion for me. I was so in my a good explosion there. You know, obviously there are bad ones. No no joking aside. But uh, but in my mind, in my heart, it was a it was more like a firework. It was a firework exploding. Um, Yeah. So. You guys have you guys have all buried yourself alive at some point, right? <laughs> That's what it feels like right now. What can you have? Huh? What kind of bad explosions can you have inside your body? Well, we can come back to that if you'd rather. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I just um, yeah. Ask me one odd thing and then one normal thing for the rest of the night, and then I'll stock. I'll think about the other ones. We'll talk about those later. But this is you. But you bring up something interesting because this is a real departure for you. Your first adaptation, your first film without your core group of actors, your first studio film. That was and, and a lot to take on, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, but it was. It was the challenge. 
you know, I, I, the, the challenge is what intrigued me about it. Uh, it was great to kind of shoot some. I'd never shot outside the UK, um, you know, and, uh, and but having like an amazing cast, like I couldn't say enough nice things about the cast and just across the board, the ensemble is amazing. And I got to work with, what was great is I got to keep like about 50% of my crew came to Toronto with me. So I had a, my regular editors and producer and production designer. But then, like behind the camera, we just had amazing people. Like we had Bill Pope, who did. Yeah, <laughs> Bill Pope, who's the cinematographer on The Matrix, The Matrix, Army of Darkness, Team America, like Dark Spider-Man Man. Two, well, Dark Man, Clueless, Clueless? Yeah. Yeah. Freaks and Geeks, the pilot. Like, like Bill Pope is the man. And then, like on the stunt side, we had um, Brad Allen and Peng Zhang, who were like from Jackie Chan's kind of fight yeah. team. And uh, just amazing kind of to work with and, and work with kind of like Jackie's team, essentially. So that's who we trained with, like in the morning for eight weeks. We trained with Jackie Chan's kind of fight team, which was incredible. But so it was it was that was great. So I kind of felt very kind of supported and, and even on the music kind of side as well, just an amazing list of collaborators. So but it was it's great to kind of challenge yourself. I kind of and I'd done, you know, two films in the UK and I, I definitely felt like I wanted to sort of just break out and do something a little different, you know. Were you worried about this, Michael, just because he hadn't worked in the States before and this was a comic that people had a lot of loyalty to? Were you concerned about that? Because this is really one of the first adaptations you've done, too. I wasn't worried ever, no. I, I had total faith in Edgar. Um, I, I thought it was in really good hands. I didn't think anyone could have done it better. I just wanted to be a part of it, you know. Well, because Jason, you're playing an interesting, as one of the exes, it seems to be this kind of cross between Phil Spector and Swan from Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, I mean, um, Swan uh, and what was something that Edgar and I talked about early on as a, as a major reference, as well um, as uh, Z-Man, the character Z-Man from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Um, so those were two major, major points of reference for me and, and, and movies that I watched a lot. Um, and uh, I mean, for me, the the main, you know, the main thing that uh, was was a was a joy to do with Edgar was really figure this character out together because there isn't a lot about him in the in the books. There is more now in the most recent one, but it was it was wonderful to really collaborate and, and figure it out. But um, one thing that he said that was like the ultimate help to me was that he said that um, you're the seventh bad guy, you're the worst of them all, and be very passive aggressive. So don't be, you know what I mean? Be, be, I want you to smile, um, to like Scott, to uh, pat him on the shoulder a lot, to touch him, be, you know, be very physical and, and like him. Um, and then the fun thing was, because there's two kinds of passive-aggressive people. They're the ones that are obviously passive-aggressive. You know, you meet people and you think this person is a jerk, really, and they're just smiling and lying to me. And then there are people who truly seem nice, and then later you find out that they were, that they were jerks. And um, it was fun with Edgar because we didn't know which passive aggressive he could be. So we, I remember we would do like versions where he was overtly a jerk and then takes where just be as kind as possible. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we would do variations of that. And that was so much fun because when you watch the movie, um, it, 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 I, I think that it's, there's a real array of, of all those different versions and it makes my character seem highly unstable. But you were talking about passive-aggressive, and Michael Scott is a really passive-aggressive guy who's kind of a dick at a few points, isn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, how do you mean passive-aggressive? I mean, just the way he's <laughs> dealing with knives and not dealing with yeah, knives. He's and... Yeah, he's really inconsiderate. I'm sorry, inconsistent. Uh, Forgive my imprecision. Yeah, no, he's no, Canadian. 
He's Canadian. I mean, say no more. You know, he's just a Canadian piece of shit. And, <laughs> which I was perfect for this part, I think. I'm from Toronto and I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> um, but it's, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make a conversation here, but it's got to be a really tough thing to play because you've got to remain sympathetic, but he's somebody who doesn't know what he wants until he sees it. Definitely. The first time I watched the movie, I realized what a dick the character can be at certain times, especially to Knives. He really is pretty heartless at certain moments in the movie and kind of just tosses her away. Well, it's funny because it, it really seems kind of melodramatic in the comic, but you, made, you played it more for laughs, though, rather than making it kind of a, a melodramatic thing. I know. I don't think people laugh when they see it. I think everybody's on Ellen's side in that scene. I've watched it with audiences where you could hear a pin drop and people go, oh. So I don't think... I think sort of what, I think what's nice about the character and what's nice about the books is that it, it basically, you know, on paper it would seem to be like a story about boy meets girl, boy gets girl, but it's really a story about young love and how, like, that, you know, it isn't all kind of, to quote the film, it isn't all peaches and gravy. It's just, like... It's a kind of a rocky road for Scott, and he meets this girl who's kind of like a, a mirage of a dream girl, but the path to true love is, is not kind of, um, you know, is, is fraught with kind of disaster. But then also the irony is, is that Scott himself, he's kind of painted himself in his mind as the hero of the movie in his own head, and yet, he, you know, Ramona Flowers has baggage, but then Scott has baggage too, and he's kind of a bit of a hypocrite, really, is that he kind of... You know, he bemoans the kind of uh, the, the, the trauma that he's going through with Ramona and having to deal with her exes, but he has exes and he has baggage. And uh, he kind of gets his karmic comeuppance in the film, really. So I, I like the idea that it was, um, it was, you know, that our kind of hero, it's not completely black and white. You know, there are shades of grey to him. And he's kind of young, you know, and when people are young and in love, they do stupid things and kind of, you know, break people's hearts without even realising. What's fun about your character, Anna, is that she says exactly what she thinks at any given point, which has really got to be great to play. Yeah, um, I, I feel like Stacy is sort of the voice in the back of everybody's head that tells you, this is a really messed up decision you're making and you should not do this, but it's the same voice that you know you're not going to listen to. Um, so she kind of calls and, and says her piece every time he makes a decision. But she knows that he's not going to listen, and, and because she's a younger sister, I think she sort of takes pleasure in watching him flounder around in awkward situations, and which I have with my older brother. I have both those things, so that rings very true for me. <laughs> but also she takes pleasure in kind of twisting the knife and kind of reminding him what a jerk he is at all times in front of everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, she's sort of trying to be the Jiminy Cricket and say, like, you know, and this is Knives. Remember Knives? Yeah, she's here too. Um, and, you know, to no avail. But, you know, she does take a certain amount of pleasure. But, I, you know, she, she cares about him too, I guess. It's for, it's for his own good. I have to wonder, what was the first read-through like for you guys, just reading the script together as a group? What was that like? It was great. You had a bunch of stuff to show, didn't you? You had a bunch of songs you queued up and oh, yeah. clips and stuff. Yeah, we, I mean, we had to rehearse most of it kind of in little groups. And I think the, the first, uh, because, um, because there's so many, like, sort of, everybody came, yeah, there's so many, there's a huge ensemble and to have the seven X's. So I think when we had the read-through for the studio, you kind of traditionally do that. We had pretty much all of the cast there. Um, but we did a proper show and tell. We had kind of like, because we had all the music. So we could actually, and we even had some of the fights kind of in either storyboard form or even in some kind of stunt rehearsal form. So it was a real, 
show and tell. We even had the Universal logo and everything. So we kind of, when we did the read-through, it was a proper AV experience. What was that read-through like for you guys? And did it help it to make even more sense just sitting there with all the actors? Anna and Jason were the two people who weren't there. <laughs> but I'm told that Mae Whitman did an impression of me. I don't know what that looks like. Really? Yeah, I don't know what that means. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to find out. And Don McKellar played you. Don McKellar? For one night. Yeah. Wow. Same haircut. Um, let's, <laughs> where, how are we doing questions? Is there a microphone or what are we doing? If you have a question, I suspect some people do, raise your hand and we'll get the microphone to you. Question from this gentleman right here in the front. Um, hi. Uh, big honor being in the same room as you guys. Kind of freaking out about that, but um, my question is for Edgar. Um, were there any particular moments in the comic that both you and Brian Lee O'Malley really wanted in there, but they just didn't fit? Not really, because I think Brian is a brilliant, uh, an amazing collaborator because he's, he, he really under, he's not precious. He really understands that it had to become a movie. And I think in a weird way, Brian actually prefers the film when it goes wildly off track from the books. Um, and I think there are some scenes that visually just work better in the comics. Like there's a big scene in Honest Ed's in the third book, which is amazing. But I don't think there's any way you could make it look as cool as it does in the book. And even down to little jokes, like there's... There's like a great joke in the first book about Mr. Silly's shoes, but there's no way of doing it in live action because the joke relies on two drawings. So those things are sort of, there are some things that you can make flesh and bring into live action. There's some things that just, things that he can do better on the page and we can do better in the film. And, and so there was, ne there was never anything that we say, oh, I wish we had like uh, time and money to do that. I think, you know, it's pretty jam-packed, <laughs> like even as it is about the food stuff because they're obsessed with food in the comic. There's food in every issue. There's a, there's pretty, there's a lot of eating. You eat a lot of garlic bread. Yeah. The garlic bread thing, yeah. But I mean, they're making for their recipes. Oh, uh, yeah, we haven't got the vegetarian lasagna in there. That's one for the books. So, apologies. Way in the back. Oh, hi, guys. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I actually already got the, the chance to watch the movie and uh, rating awesome. Um, it would you, have been sir. terrible you. if you came all this way <laughs> just to say in front of everyone, shit. It's, it's total shit. Um, so, so a question I got is, um, you guys have a cartoon coming to Adult Swim uh, like right before this thing comes out. I was wondering if uh, there was some kind of speculation for more cartoon Scott Pilgrim form? I don't know. I think maybe like there was the... I don't know. You know. Depending on how the film does, maybe there's a way of you know, doing more of the books material in cartoon form but um, I think it's kind of just early days like you know it, it, the film like was basically like finished about four weeks ago and the game is kind of like coming it, it's funny how just and even Brian's book I think like volume six was like actually properly finished like maybe eight weeks before like hitting the stores so everything is sort of coming to an apex at the same time so I think genuinely none of us have really thought about the future because we just kind of like just all finished our respective bits and, and the Ubisoft game as well. So it's kind of cool that like all these different kind of, um, you know, the, the book has come to some resolution or the series has come to some resolution in different media at the same time. But I have a question now because when you're playing a, a character in the comic book as compared to a book, for example, where there's some inner life. I mean, how do you sort of figure out how to do it? Because I know you talk to Edgar and you read the script, but you've got to bring something of yourself from the page, right? So what do you, what do, you do? 
rehearsing was really helpful in this movie. But the books were, you know, really helpful too because you had the uh, Brian's art and you know his expression, and you could see. You know, it's compared to if you're doing something else. The comics are kind of off on the outside. They're off on the outside, but I mean, they help you kind of get a feel for the tone, okay. and 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 to know what the script is going for and what you know the humor of the movie is going to feel like in a way. But rehearsing was really helpful because it just uh, made me feel like we could go bigger, and and I knew you know that Edgar wasn't going to put something in the movie that wasn't right, so we rehearsed for like a few weeks, right? Yeah, and we also had like between the three of them here, there was different like levels of access that were interesting like um brian uh, myself and michael bacall wrote out like 10 fun facts for some of the characters um uh, to, uh, to not to be discussed with the other actors so it was a bit like kind of like playing clue or something anna got to meet the real stacy and jason you kind of got to talk to brian because brian was still writing volume six as you know you were we were working out the the part you know uh, the real Stacy uh, told me I should try to play it more half Asian. <laughs> I did my best. Uh, no, she was really, really cool. And um, you, were, you were doing it full Asian at first. Yeah, right? it was a mess. She said to pull it it back was a bit. mess. Um, but uh, she was really sweet and um, just basically told me that the way that Brian wrote it in the comics is very true to what their act- their relationship was. And um, and she gave me uh, in the book I work at the Second Cup. And the real Stacy worked at the Second Cup, and she gave me her Stacy name tag, and that's the name tag that I wear in the film. Wow. Fun fact. Put that on IMDb. Now, but right. what, what did it say? What did it say on the, the... It had something cool on the actual name tag under the name. What? Certified coffee agent. Wow. Like, sounds like the CIA. I like it. Brian, um, one thing that was the, 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 a really great thing he said to me was... Um, you know, keep in mind that this movie is, um, and all of these books are from Scott Pilgrim's point of view. So, as you're thinking about Gideon, you know, know that you're, you're maybe you're not really expected to play Gideon Graves, maybe as he really would be, but as the way Scott sees him. And so, so much of figuring out my character was really just trying to understand his character. And what I and and you know, basically, whatever I had to be against him, I would do. So that it, because there is very little about Gideon, but people are talking about Gideon the whole movie, and so all of those things end up becoming sort of like a, you know, like a an outline of something, and then it really helps you just figure out what like a coloring book what you what you have to do. So, um, and then of course, you know. This is the ultimate instance of really trusting someone like you know Edgar because there is so much going on, and um, you really you know you have to just believe this person. Bec- I, I kind of think of it like uh, if you were a musician and you were asked to come into a um, like if you were a session musician or something and you were asked to go in um, to lay down a, a part, let's say of a of a of a French horn if it was like a big piece of music, and you went in and the conductor played you little snippets of stuff that's been recorded before which would be in the case little uh, all the other boyfriends edgar showed me little parts that had already been shot and then i come in to do my part i really have no idea where i should be and how loud i should be or how crazy or what's over the top or what's what's going to you know what will ruin his movie and what won't 
And so you just say, what do you want from me? Like, what am I supposed to do? Because he has the whole piece of music. He knows the mix of all the instruments, how they should be. So ultimately, you just trust this man. And, and he is so articulate that, you know, it's amazing. Like, vo verbally and visually, he was showing us storyboards. And in the case of Michael and I's fight, he, there were actually... He, they shot with a DV camera two stuntmen dressed as the two of us in rehearsal doing our entire fight in the same shots. I mean, very crudely, but really gave you an idea of what you were aiming for. And it was amazing because um, it was so specific. And we would go in, Michael and I, Edgar would show us on his Mac computer. Um, <laughs> true, uh, true. Uh, Edgar showed us on his Mac computer on the iMovie <laughs> program. The... Um, what the, the video of the two stuntmen. And then we, Michael and I would, would shoot an angle, for instance. And then Edgar not only had a, an editor and an editing team working in an office, but on set there was an editor. They would shoot that film somehow of what we had just shot to that man, who would then edit it into the rough, crude DV camera version of it that's on his computer. And we would see Michael and I fighting, and then it would cut back to the stuntman as us fighting, and then back to Michael and I. And now Edgar would say, now we're going to get this piece. And instead of shooting a three-minute long version of something, which is a very typical thing on a movie set, you'd shoot like, I, I, you know, like you shoot three minutes of something and then get it from a different angle, a different angle. Edgar knew exactly what he needed from each shot only. So we were like hyper-focusing. He's like, just for this angle, all I need is you picking up the sword and looking up. You know, and all I need in this one is you saying this line. And so it was super, super focused and super um, done in pieces, which was an amazing way to work. And so you knew exactly what you were supposed to do. And you had all this visual reference. So you, it really, it was like you were in such um, safe hands. Is that unusual? Because they're always such short. That, that's also my way of saying if you don't like what you see, it's not my fault. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but you do, there's so many quick cuts in your movies anyway. I wonder if that's if that was unusual for you to be that focused on using shortcuts or if that's uh, a new way of you working? It was kind of like the Hong Kong way of doing things. And, and also, you know, I had the opportunity, very fortunately, to talk to Quentin Tarantino about how he did the Kill Bill fights. And basically, the way that they do it in Hong Kong films is that they, you know, in Western films, you shoot this way before lunch and that way after lunch. And with this, because, especially because the fights are so kind of intricate, the easiest way to learn them is like a little dance routine. So like first shot's here, one, two, three, second shot's here, four, five, six. And, and that's how, you know, that's how the way it works and you do it in sequence. So it's like this having this like enormous jigsaw and it's kind of like a, a war of attrition getting through it, but it makes it so much easier for the performers because they're micro-focusing on one thing at a time. So action-wise, it was amazing. And like those, those guys, the, the you know, like, the, the Hong Kong team have, have got it so figured out in terms of like how to maximize your principles. My note to them was like, I want it to look, I want all the fights to look kind of like dance routines that they look like production numbers from musicals. So it's not like, you're not trying to do like a Born Identity style fight and make it like a real rough and tumble. It's very stylized and choreographed. You can mostly dance the fight scenes anyway. Yeah, music is paralleling along all of the fight scenes and in some cases fights turn into musical sequences. Some of the fights are, are musical, you know. It's like Bollywood after a certain point. I mean, I wonder if there are any Bollywood films that are referenced for you because in some way it almost feels like that. Yeah, no, definitely Bollywood is a reference in terms of, and some of the kind of the, um, you know, kind of Japanese comedies where, you know, just things can explode into a dance routine in the middle of an action scene. And you don't really get that in many Western films. So it was a real kind of joy to do. 
Um, so that, that was a really great way of working. It meant we could really focus, and it meant for the performers who were doing the action sequences that we could tell them exactly what we needed. And, uh, it, it, you know, so it made it a lot of a longer process, but a really precise process, you know. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a tricky thing, like, because it's not like a superhero film where these guys can throw masks on. You see their faces all the way through the fights. And so you had to really kind of focus. And in terms of what Jason was talking about with the editing, you know, we would edit a scene together and come back the next day when on the same set and thinking, we haven't seen Michael's face. You know, like, just need to kind of get a, a good shot in here. And so we'd actually add something in. So that'd be a great thing of, like, being able to edit it on the go and show the stunt guys and saying, I feel like we really need a close-up of this here. So I never, like, done that before of, like, editing so much on set, but it was really helpful. And, and the, the, the scenes are so intricate that, um, it, you know, it, it, was, it was really complicated, but it was ultimately made it easier to kind of get through, really. And what was interesting, what Jason was saying earlier about, like, Gideon... I think is, is, there is something that's in the final book. Uh, the idea of Scott Pilgrim being an unreliable narrator is really interesting because, you know, that was what Brian said to, like, Jason is like, oh, maybe Gideon's not such a bad guy. Maybe it's all in Scott's head. And I really like that idea in the film. We, we, were gonna, we never shot it, but we thought about doing this alternate ending for the DVD where, like, it suddenly had a cop-style ending where Scott Pilgrim was arrested for the murder of seven people. <laughs> And like he's kind of bent over like the sort of a police squad car, and they were saying, and, and who is this lady knife shout? He goes, I, I swear she's 18. You know? <laughs> it's thought it'd be great to get like, Scott Pilgrim arrested at the There's end of the blood film. Blood everywhere. Yeah. It's a bloodbath. A mass murderer. <laughs> we have time for two more questions from the audience, and this is the first. Over here, sure. Over here, way, way over here. Hi. Um, I'm actually going to a performing arts camp and a cinematography camp right now, Sakaba. And so we're really interested in how long it took to make the film and all the editing, because it seems like there's a lot of animation mixed in with um, the actual filming. So. It was a really long shoot. It's like sort of, uh, I think Shaun of the Dead took nine weeks to film. Hot Fuzz took th uh, like 13 weeks. And this was like, I can't even think of how many, like, it was basically like five months we shot this film. And mainly because the way that we did the fights, say like on a big action film, like um, if you're doing a Bond film, somebody else will direct the car chase. The main director is like not doing the car chase. That has been done at the same time and they have another crew shooting that. Or the, yeah, on the Bourne films as well, same thing as the car chase is kind of done in tandem. But with this, because the performers, the principals are in every single fight, it's more personal. You know, you can literally see their faces there. Michael and Jason are very much in the fight that they're doing. So it's all kind of main unit stuff. So that way, um, it's the same way that they shot Kill Bill as well. And, and, and some directors do it. Of just So it's actually spent, save money on the second unit, but stretch out the main unit for as long as possible, which makes it super tiring. And I would, we would shoot five days a week, but then on a Saturday, I would sometimes direct second unit, or sometimes we'd shoot a song on a Saturday. There are like songs in the film and... You know, maybe there's a, a Beck song that you only hear for 90 seconds, but it's two minutes long, so it's like, well, let's shoot the whole thing. And so we'd shoot on a Saturday, like doing like a, like a song bit, or we'd do some stunts that would take like half a day to set up. So it was a really long shoot, uh, and it was like a marathon. And it was actually interesting that like what kind of kept us, even though we had a really fun and lively cast, in a way what kept us going sometimes is that every like three weeks there'd be a new ex and somebody else would come in and sort of shake things up. And in fact, Jason came along at the point where we were in the last set piece, which you're going to see a little bit of later, 
where we were all exhausted, even though we were having fun with it and it was, you know, going well, it absolutely. You just kind of hit a wall at some point doing something this intensive. And Jason sort of basically came along to be like a pep up. <laughs> well, Michael, how long did it take you to get confident with the action stuff? How long did it take you to get confident doing the action stuff? I was never confident with the action stuff. <laughs> I'm still not. What's interesting me. is that your character becomes more physically confident in the movie. <laughs> so I wonder how you work that out because it's being shot out of sequence and all these things. How did you figure it out to play it in that way? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I guess maybe that was the, just the learning curve of the, the, the sequence that we shot the scenes in. But I really, I mean, all you need is one good take, you know, so we would do like... 12 really bad ones that looked just silly and then see what you were doing really wrong and try and correct that, you know? But the guys that we were working with are like artists, you know, they're incredible and they can pinpoint exactly what you're doing wrong. You know, your back should be straighter, you'll look, you'll look tougher or like, you know, you can make this look stronger. They'll point out little things for you to focus on and you just build this idea of different things you need to focus on and then get one take where you do them all kind of well. They would be the, the stunt guys would be really like sort of like obviously the really hypercritical, which is amazing. And like sort of Brad Allen, who is the stunt coordinator, would kind of be like the Simon Cowell on set with any action. And sort of it was very sort of like you know hard hard earned praise from him. If you got like a thumbs up from Brad, you could see Michael and Jason go. Oh. <laughs> it meant so much. Yeah, it, felt, it, it really it did so feel hard. good, didn't it? Like oh, we would just do one these, thing. Yeah. All he would have to do is be like, and I would. Hang on to that for a month. Yeah, <laughs> cry myself happy, happy tears to sleep every night. <laughs> I, I knew. Remember, remember that moment, Michael. You can maybe tell him when we did when we were um, we. Michael and I had been learning this choreography, and they filmed it on a DV camera for us to watch. And um, they they filmed it, and then they were showing it to us, and we thought they were sh sh showing it to us to show us how great it was. So we could, be, we could be proud. Like, look at the work you boys have done. But they were actually showing it to us to show Shoot us how us bad it was. And um, do you remember that feeling? We, we both watched it, and we went, wow. We were like, you know, high-fiving. That's awesome. <laughs> you look amazing. I was, I was like, Michael, that, you look like such a badass. That's great. And then, um, and then, Brad and then just ripped it yeah. apart, you know. And it, was a, it, it really is true that these, the, the, the excellence that they demand is, is, is so high and... Um, and it was really challenging, and I, but it was a wonderful experience to get to work with those people. More questions. They've, they've waited. We love you. Elvis? <laughs> Elvis, don't go. On? Hello? Hey, I'm Tony with TheActionRoom.com, and I just wanted to ask about the soundtrack. I know you guys gave away some free copies of the soundtrack. You work with Beck. You had a lot of uh, songs to get the rights to, and I know that you even got in... The original Plum Tree song that Scott Pilgrim is named after. Also, if you, as a B part of the question, if you want to talk about, you guys actually played your instruments with the band, Michael and uh, the other members of the band. Yeah, uh, we we kind of been working on the soundtrack for like two years. Nigel Godrich did the score, and it was we had this idea like to get different bands to play the different fictional bands, so different artists would do it. Like, um, so it would all sound pretty diverse and wouldn't sound like this. It wouldn't sound like one composer had done all the songs, so we had Beck doing the, cra uh, the Sex Bob-omb songs. See, that's a big question for me. Is when, you, when you're reading the comic, you wonder what Sex Bob-omb is going to sound like. And when did you decide that that... Uh, when did you come up with their sound? Because it, it's really kind of crucial to the whole conception of the movie. 
Well, it was um, Brian. Uh, me and Brian went to meet Beck in San Francisco. We went to when he was playing Outside Lands, and me, Brian, and Nigel went to meet Beck there and talked about the sound of it. And we talked about some of the bands that you know that we had been thinking of, like Guitar Wolf and Times New Viking, and this kind of idea of them being really scuzzy and noisy. Um, and then Beck went into the studio uh, in his home studio, and he had the, all the books, he had the script, he had like the storyboards, and then we blew up these, like to twice the size, like all the sex bomb frames and put them all around his studio. So he had these big Roy Lichtenstein like versions of Brian's artwork. And then like 72 hours later, he'd like knocked out 25 songs, uh, which are all, even that one that you just heard there is one of the Beck songs. Um, and we didn't really do anything else to them. They were all eight track demos and they sounded really raw. And, you know, cause Sex Bob Bomber is supposed to be not a particularly polished band. So really the songs in the film are pretty much the first take and it just, you know, it's a testament to him that he can just, that's what's great about it is he can kind of knock out like a three minute kind of really catchy kind of like rock song, uh, you know, just like that. And it's like, well, that's perfect, you know? And, and so it, it was amazing. So we had that music for 18 months before we started shooting. Uh, and the same with the other bands as well that came on board like Metric and Broken Social Scene and Cornelius. Dan the Automator. It was just like an embarrassment of riches. I'd love to say that that was all my doing, but I think when, when Nigel Godridge gets involved, it's like an all-access pass to any artist you could ever think of, you know? There's also a cue from the Warriors in the movie, too. And there's a, there, there, is a, there is a tribute to the Warriors in the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, you had a... I think yours was a seven-part question, so I've forgotten parts two to seven. I'm sorry. Did you guys play your own instruments? No. We weren't playing the instruments. We were just instrument syncing, which we got really good at. We practiced these songs for like two months before we went and shot. So we really, the three of us really knew them and also felt a certain ownership over them because we had been playing them every day. Um, but yeah, no, we're not actually playing. But Mark Webber is actually singing in the movie. Yeah. It's also that great legend. I mean, I look at the, the video game stuff. Is, this is like a commune now. Um, the... the, the that Legend of Zelda music and that whole sequence. That, when did you come up with the idea to reference specific video games? Um, we had, like, uh, Johnny Simmons' character, Young Neil, is playing, like, a Nintendo, like, handheld for the entire film. So that was a nice thing. I kind of done that in Spaced and Shaun of the Dead before, the idea of, like, the sounds of the kind of video games start to soundtrack the scenes. And with this, um, all, of the, all of the games they're playing are all from, like, the late 80s and early 90s. So I... I, I I felt like the books, it, to me, it felt very nostalgic. So, and I felt like the music from Mario and Zelda were like kind of lullabies for a generation. And, um, and so in one of the scenes, like young Neil is playing and there's like a particular piece of music from Zelda called like the beginning of the journey. And it kind of, as Scott Pilgrim walks into a bathroom and kind of walks into a dream, basically, the music you hear from the console suddenly becomes a huge orchestral piece. And we had to go to Nintendo to get it cleared, and it went right to the top of Miyamoto, uh, like, watching it. So he watched this kind of scene to okay it. Um, so that was kind of... Yeah, he had to approve, like, the, the, the piece of music. So, so that was pretty amazing. Before we... I have one question, quick question for you, Anna, before I go to my last question to you. How much time did you spend on the movie? How, how much... Yes, you. Um, I probably spent uh, about four weeks on it, but the majority, I think about three weeks were kind of in the background of a fight scene, just going like... <laughs> and uh, the rest of it, oddly, like, I could have shot my entire part in one day, 
Uh, Michael and I thought about that because um, most of my stuff is on the phone, just sort of by myself, um, and it's like one shot. And uh, as long as I could fit my lines in between the space that Michael left me, that was just the take we used because I finally fucking got it right. And um, uh, and then like the scene on the swings and uh, yeah, I don't know. It was it's strange actually. Like my speaking role could have been shot uh, very quickly, but. It's just sort of like goes to show you how insanely technical this shoot was that like shooting a fight scene that takes like a couple minutes and looks so fast and so cool was like three weeks of just <laughs> being in the background, not really knowing what was going on. And you have a great story we can end with about the couch. That's a good one to end with. There's a little tiny drummer in the movie who's nine years old, and she's from the graphic novels, too. She's in Crash in the Boys. And this young girl was really sweet, and she had a photo double because she could only work like eight hours a day. And um, the photo double was one of the strangest people I've ever met. And she's a nine-year-old girl, and she said some of the weirdest things ever. And the funniest thing she said was she was sitting on a green leather couch, like slumped down, and we were all just sitting around, and she went, does anybody have a knife? <laughs> and we went... No? And she said, I want to cut open this couch and live inside of it. <laughs> so. And on that note, <laughs> let's thank Edgar, Michael, Anna, and And Elvis. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for coming to the Apple Store in Soho. Please check out apple.com slash Soho for all the free events and workshops that we give here in our theater seven days a week all year long. Also, remember to check up the iTunes Store for the Meet the Filmmaker podcast. In a few days, you'll be able to download this very event and have a souvenir for yourself. Thank you, everybody, for coming, and have a great night.